I believe everyone has a story to share. I'm on a journey to discover the magic inside each person's story. Each week, I will introduce you to guests where I will dig deep and uncover the beautiful miracles from life and experiences to inspire and encourage you to live life to the fullest. My goal is to give each guest a platform to share their lives with the world in hopes that someone will be inspired to take action and live life with passion and purpose. Welcome to the Uncover Your Magic podcast with me, Ashley Goner. Are you ready? Here we go. Welcome back to Uncover Your Magic. Today, I have the pleasure to introduce you to Polly Bateman, all the way from London, England. I know you will love this episode and learn some magical tools from her. As most of you know, who have been listening to the show, my magic family, I'll call you, know that the past two years for me have really been an incredible journey. I know a lot of people look at these past two years as hard, and I get that because it was a different way of living. And we all had to adjust our lives in one way or another. What if I asked you to look at 2020 as the biggest gift you've ever received? What would that story sound like? We are all writing a story and living a life here on earth. Why not tell a story of blessings and have it be filled with so much love and peace? We are the creators of our lives. No one else gets to write the script. Isn't that an empowering thought? We are in charge of how we feel and show up in the world. I always say, don't ever let anyone steal your joy. Why give your power away and allow something like 2020 bring your vibration down when you can create more magic, living in the love, knowing everything is always perfect and working for you, not to you. As we get ready to enter 2022, what story are you going to write? We have a clean slate. We can be, do, or have anything. Don't look back in life and say, what if, or I wish. We only have this moment. Look at this new year and each day as a gift and say to yourself, what am I becoming? And what is emerging from the gifts I have inside? We all have unique gifts. Don't hide them. Show them to the world. Be an example of love and pure acceptance and be intentional each day to make a difference. I am beginning my next session of my Raising Confidence course for kids and the magic path for adults and parents. There's a link in the show notes or go to my website, ashleygonner.com. There's also a link there for a waiting list. I only take a small number. So the classes always fill up. So make a commitment to yourself this new year of 2022 and change the way you view the world and your life and get inspired to live a life so amazing. Everyone wants to hear your story. Now on to the episode with Polly Bateman. Here's a little bit about her. Straight talking, empathetic, and disarmingly humorous mindset and performance mentor Polly Bateman is here to disrupt your beliefs and break through the self-imposed barriers that limit your potential. Her clients come from all walks of life, from entrepreneurs and C-suite executives through to public figures and world-class athletes. Polly is also the creator of The Grumpet, which is an 
endearing new character and self-help storybook created initially for her son and now used by many children in schools to help children grow in confidence and self-esteem through learning to soothe their own grumpet. You are going to love Polly, so let's get on with the show. Welcome. Hey. Hi. <laughs> from you. London, right? Yeah, all the way from London, just kind of outside on the left a little bit, just enough that there's uh, countryside around me when I need it, and I can get into London fast when I want the energy of London as well. And you've been there for how long? Your well, my husband's life? military. No, my oh, husband's right. military, so we move around all the time. I'm married for love in this lifetime. I love <laughs> I've that. I've told him, next lifetime, I'm coming back and doing it for stability and money. Oh, funny. <laughs> and he's always like, good luck to them. Good luck to him. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love your story. I, you know, having this podcast has opened my, I never would have met you. And then I start listening to things that you've been recording and on podcasts and read your website. And I'm like, oh, this woman speaks my language. And, you know, you have this childhood that I believe that I have two children, 12 and 15, and I've raised them because I know what we know now as a parent, as they were babies, how I was programming them. And I have always been present with them and had this huge awareness, but it was because I had them later in my life. So I had the, you know, the, the ability to have all this develop personal development up until I was 35, 36, had Paige when I was 37, and Presley when I was 40. So now that they're 12 and 15, and listening to your story as a childhood and what where you've taken the things that we that we are programmed with into our life. And I love that, that your take on it, like even when you say the sentence of something, because this is it, you know, like everything has the, you know, it's because of this. And you have these like your your limiting beliefs that you've had that you think are true, but aren't because that's all we've, you know, that's all we believe. It's not the truth. And I, with my students and, and the kids that I, cause I have a a raising confidence course where I teach children, all these things, we go through a whole deep dive into self-limiting beliefs, because I believe that as a child, if you really knew what you know, and you think you've been programmed as that your parents only do what they do best. You know, that's all we know is what we do the best, but, you know, to learn how to get those out and really remove them and live without that and push past the fear, you know? Yeah. So I think, anyway. I know I, it's like the one thing that I was very sure of when I had my son was that I wanted him to feel free in his childhood. And I was like, how do I create that? Because I know I didn't. I, and I know I had a lot of fear of, you know, I'd be, I was taught children should be quiet and not seen, you know, or, you know, seen and not heard actually is what they say. And, you know, there were even times when people who loved me said very limiting things like, well, I think you should think about something that might really suit you. That might be shooting a little high right now. And the the secret message there is, "Mm, yeah, that's not going to work for you, you know, and a child's developmental age in the brain is only where it's at. So if you get a six-year-old child in a classroom, you may have heard me talk about this before, and they've got their hand up and they're like, pick me, because they really like this teacher and they really want to answer the question. The teacher picks them and they give their answer and they got it wrong. (gasps) And everybody has a little nervous giggle. The child takes that from what they know of the world and colors in the narrative. Mm -hmm. And the narrative says, oh no, I really screwed up there or I really disappointed the teacher or... 
you know, we have more attention seekers these days based on the way brains are developing with the various different kind of, they've all got labels. And I don't think labels like dyslexia and ADHD are necessarily helpful sometimes. And those labels can label a child. And then a child might go, I liked the feedback. I got more attention there than I've had all month at home. So they then might enjoy giving a silly answer, just answering for the sake of it. But when I was growing up, the average child didn't. And from what I know about children today, they don't like getting it wrong because we're coded through cause and effect and through right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And we understand if I tip this glass over, this, the fluid falls out. You know, if I touch that and it's hot, I won't like the experience. It hurts my hand. If I put one foot in the front of the other, I learn to walk. You know, it started from waving our wrists around until we could get our little chubby fists in our mouth, you know. Mm-hmm. And you've seen babies bite themselves sometimes and then have confusion on their face that pain came and they didn't know they delivered their own pain. <laughs> so from, from that perspective, that was the coding of cause and effect. And when we're a little older, like six years old, and the effect is unpleasant, we assume we're the cause. Right. We can't see the bigger picture. We don't have the developmental capacity in our brain to see a full picture. So we take what we know about the world and we decide something in that moment that then controls our behavior forevermore. Because that child makes a decision most times out of 10 to not put their hands up again unless they're really sure. Mm-hmm. you know, or in a more comfortable place. Because the other thing that happened in that moment was we are coded in our primary relationship, which is parent-child, which is where we also learn our parenting, even mm-hmm. though we are the child. We learn the discomfort of right and wrong. And sadly, there's a slight ah uh, in the way we teach it as humans because shame is often attached. Mm-hmm. Even when we've just displeased a parent and they're relatively like, no, you don't do that. No, mommy doesn't like that. Even in that moment, you have that like, I got that wrong. And mm-hmm. because shame has been introduced to us already, and there's a real sense of morality attached to shame, right. we don't enjoy that experience. So we had a double hit there. We got it wrong and we can't process what's just happened. Right. So walk into a classroom full of 17 year olds and ask them a question. How many put their hands up? <laughs> I know. Right. right. Yeah. Not many. No. Because they have been burnt by those early experiences. But let's fast forward 30 years and that 36-year-old now is sat in a meeting. Your brain is already processing your environment deeply. Mm-hmm. And in processing the environment, they've gone back through experiences that we're not even consciously acknowledging. This is in our subconscious. It's taken the experience. It's now doing a quick calculation by projecting forward. Well, the boss is in a bit of a bad mood today. That dude I really don't like from marketing's in. And the lady that I really like has popped in and I don't want to look like a fool in front of her. And none of this is conscious. It's all nanoseconds. A calculation is made and we come to the conclusion it's probably best to stay quiet. But we don't even think that. We just go to say something and don't quite find the right moment. And it's a bit like, "Mm, um, mm," you know, and then we come out and we say we have to justify our behavior. And we'll say, yeah, I just don't like speaking up in meetings. Public speaking is just not for me. Like, how do you know? That's not a thing you were born with. That's a thing you got coded with. Right. Not a reality. You connect shame with perfectionism. Explain that connection. 
how do I, well, what I learned years ago at some point on my travels of consuming information is that the more you are consumed with perfectionism as an adult, the closer the relationship to shame you had as a child. Mm, Yes. Because it comes as a way of controlling your environment, desperately trying to control it, to create a, a form of order and peace that you have at least got. So those people, you know, it can be an asset to you if you're a wedding planner, um, (laughs) but you're going to be one of those wedding planners, for example, who'll make everybody else's day great, but you'll be exhausted at the end of it. Right. And, you know, it's great in artistry and creatives, you know, perfection can be a thing, but I've seen perfectionists screw up beautiful pictures they've drawn or sketched and throw them in the bin. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to pay money for that, you know, (laughs) right? (laughs) because they don't see it as good enough. And like every part of us is good enough. Right. And yet, where did we get the idea? Where did we get the idea? Some part wasn't. Right. And when you get to that person, client, friend that has that perfectionism, that nothing, they never, it's like, I feel like they're never going to move forward because there's such a fear-based thought that anything that you know, I'm, I'm not good. I can't do that because that's just not right yet. And I'm not ready to do that because it's just not perfect yet. I'm like, you just got to do it. You know, yeah. there's so many of those sayings in the world that doesn't have to be perfect. Just do it. You know, just take that first step. How do you get people like that, that you've worked with? Well, this is a great question. You know, you can't change a behavior if you don't understand why it exists. Because a behavior becomes... So a behavior, so there are two things you learn as a child. So we talked about the cause and effect and the right and wrong, but you learn two languages as a child. So you learn the language of speech mm-hmm. through repetition and you learn the language of behavior through repetition. So if you have a parent who talks a big game but never actually acts, that's exactly the behavior you're going to take on. Right. So there's that to discover, but also it's discovering if you don't understand how you got coded, then you can't understand what there is to deal with. It's a blind spot to you. It's just, it's just what you, you say things like, well, it's just what I do. I just don't like those kind of things. I don't like those kind of people. How do you know? How do you know how you got there? Right. You know, and, and in 2016, when I had my own kind of, I hit my own wall, like my life doesn't work. You know, it, it, on the outside, in essence, I should be grateful, but yet my life doesn't work for me. And being told I should be grateful when I permanently feel subhuman, on, like sub-average and, and sub-successful and just everything just doesn't feel like, why would I want to be grateful for that? I want to understand. And what I did was a deep dive into why do you do what you do, think what you think and feel the way you feel? Well, how do you act? You know, and I discovered that our thoughts, which are programmed into us, our thinking, creates a feeling and feelings lead to actions. So it's like thoughts, then feelings, then actions. And the actions we take give us the results we get. So if you don't like the results you've got in life, you can circle straight back to thought. Right. You don't need to go back through it. Yes, where your energy flows, you know, where your tension goes, energy flows, all those things. But I want you to go explain... Because we have no one really understands this 2016 awakening. Because I, you had a, you're married to a military man. You had a son. He went to boarding school, and you know even that as a mom, like listening to that, you know, and how you could have you know these 
people saying, well, you're going to let your son at eight years old go to boarding school, you know, what goes through your mind and show and explain too, because I know you had a, your mom and dad got divorced and then remarried and you had a lot of dad things come up. I have two girls and I'm always about, you know, I know Richard's programming them to what they view as a, this man and this male figure in their life. And I've really, that is really, really important to me. And I feel that when I watch these girls grow and, you know, know that we've instilled in them their values, what to expect, their expectations in the way, and to know that that they're taking upon this man that has raised them into his values to really look out on the world and what they're going to choose to pick their husband or boyfriend's yeah. partner or whatever. Yeah, yeah, uh, so yeah. take that, take me somewhere there, Polly. Okay, so there's two things. Let me let me tackle the boarding school one first because that's a that's a big one for people. You know, some people c- can can be very uncomfortable with that idea and and go, I can't believe you did that. But there was there was quite a lot of very grounded thought over the whole process. So for a first, it's pretty normal amongst military people because they move so regularly that to create educational stability for their child, the children board. There is definitely an old-fashioned English thing where, oh, yes, we shall send him off to boarding school and he shall come back a fully formed human being. You know, there was that very much, but I was very much sitting outside of that camp, you know, that school of thought and that camp of thinkers. I was like, it has to be right for my son. What I'm very clear about is that my son possibly might not have been ready, and in which case he wouldn't have gone. But I obviously prepared him. I didn't just pounce it on him one day. And his questions were adorable because I used to like, what questions have you got about this? He'd be like, well, what if you've moved? How will I know how to, where to come home to? I'm not oh. a baby. Oh. He's never going to move without you knowing. You know, and I come to school, I pick you up, I drop you off. I'm always going to be there. And when he went, we were lucky with how it all worked. I actually lived 20 minutes down the road and I was like a school stalker, <laughs> you know? And he actually got to take his two bearded dragons to school with him. He was the only boy with pets in the science department at school. So I got to turn up every three days with fresh greens and worms. Oh, for, cool. Which I meant that, that I was there regularly. Yes. That was great the way that worked out. But, you know, I still did this with my child. Now I've been a coach for a long time. Whilst I had my big turnaround in 2016 on how I coached and my kind of deeper downloads on everything, I definitely knew how to speak to the truth of what was going on. Like, so this is daddy's career and we move an awful lot and you'd have a lot of different schools. And what I brought to the party was an understanding of what it's like to have a lot of different schools because I had a mother who moved around a lot and didn't have a relatively stable life earlier on. I'm not calling her unstable, just in case she ever listens. I'm just saying <laughs> it wasn't stable. And as a result, I know how inadequate I used to feel. I'd arrive at a school and they would have either already covered a topic or I'd have no idea what they were talking about. Mm-hmm. So I definitely felt very insecure in my education. And I genuinely had the first sort of, from about uh, probably 12 onwards, I thought I was stupid. Huh. It, it, it was a great shock to me to do some elements of a degree as part of a job I had when I worked for the military and discover I was super bright and actually uh, scoring like 86% and things like that. I'm going, what? Uh. You know, I genuinely thought I wasn't. 
And also I was of the age where they didn't used to do kind of the continuous assessment, you know, where you would do essays and the grades would go towards your exam mark. It was back in the day where you, you were taught everything, you revised everything, and then there was one exam and everything, you know, lay on that day. And they now understand that's not a great way to teach children. Right. Plus I was a very stressed individual as a child because things were very uh, volatile at home. And I actually went to boarding school at 14. I should have gone earlier. It was the making of me because huh. I got out of the unstable, volatile environment. So for me, it was great. And I got friends and they were like my family. And it was like great, you know, and stability occurred for me. So I had a positive experience to lean back on with a negative view of too many schools. And I also knew my son was very, very bright. He's a bit geeky. So he's kind of like at six, he was given a project to go home and, and um, look at the planets. And he was given one planet. And my boy sat down and found on the television, Horizon is this quote science geeky program. He found six one-hour episodes about the solar system and watched them back to back. Wow. You know, I mean, not, not literally the whole six hours, but over the weekend. And then went into school on the Monday and scared the crap out of the teacher. Because he <laughs> knew everything. So he is definitely yeah. very science bent. And so I knew that he was hungry for a really high quality education as well, because he had the capacity for it. Right. And there's definitely, there are very, very good state schools in this country. But if we're moving around all the time, we don't necessarily get a place at one. Right. And people move to areas where they get their place and they hold it. So I kind of already knew we'd have to throw money at the private system to be able to ensure we got the, the quality of education. I, my thing about education is not about whether it's private or, or, or not. It's about the fact that education is there to bring out the best in you and give you the best platform. I, I genuinely feel like in 20 years time, exams may well become irrelevant. So mm-hmm. it's not that I'm um, even a bent towards that, you know, but it's about letting the individual's mindset flourish and mm-hmm. discover what you are in love with. Yes. And that's what I wanted for him. Mm-hmm. And I wanted him to have the clubs, the opportunities that I can't provide at home. Right. You know, because the variety was there. Plus, he had no siblings because I'd had a lot of miscarriages, which I'm sure you have discovered in checking me out. And I didn't, I, I really, as a child that grew up in a family of four, I was like, oh, I really wish he had some siblings. So he goes off to boarding school. He's like, mommy, this is great. I've got all these brothers, you know, oh. and he loved it. And I was the one sobbing as I drove out the driveway you know right. and even when we went to check out the particular school I remember as we arrived to, to look at it the first one that we looked at and I said to Tom if it's full of London money you can bet your bottom dollar my son's not going here if it's full of nonsense and we drove in and there were children literally dangling out of trees their ties were all off to the side they had crazy hairdos their shirts were untucked and like literally don't think I've ever seen so many balls there were footballs there were tennis balls there were cricket balls there were like everywhere and we were told a funny story that when too many balls end up on the roof the caretakers go up on the roof to get them all and lob them at all the boys and it's kind of a fun (laughs) game of dodge and I just saw this great fun playground and I thought this could be perfect this could be amazing for him oh neat He was very happy and educationally, and I did my research as well. I did my research on what it's like for children to do no boarding school and to do boarding school. And you know what? There are pros and cons to both. Mm -hmm. 
So I got it. In particularly in a mobile family, there were lots of pros and cons. So we, I said to him, you, this is where we're going to put you. This is the plan, but you can come home if you want to. You just got to tell me and I'll catch you. So he knew he had an out. So as a result, it was always a choice for him. Right. That's rather than this is what we do. This is what we do. And he's really gone on now and got himself. He decided on a school he wanted to go to for his secondary school, what I call his big school, you know, and they changed schools at 13. And he got himself into a really amazing school where the ability to row, to fence, like to pottery, they don't care. You just got to be into stuff. And it's for inquiring minds as well. And he's literally in the best place for him. Oh, so so good to feel it's that a happy way. Ending for him. And I think yeah. you have to base it around an individual child and a family's circumstances and n- not judge other people until you understand perhaps why they made the decision. Totally. So that's that ticked. Let's go to the dad <laughs> question, the daddy issues. <laughs> yeah, right. So my mother, bless her, she was, I was a teenage pregnancy. It was a mistake. Oh. And she was encouraged strenuously by my middle-class sort of grandparents that she should marry my father, but they were never a fit. And I, I don't know exactly what age, but it was months when she took off with me and didn't want to be there. And to this day, I have a beautiful and slightly abstract relationship with my biological father that only came back around in 2016. So like 40 years plus of silence. And then he comes back into my life and I'm very complete with why there was no relationship. He clearly, and I'm trained in this, so I understand, has PTSD and has had it since his early 20s. He's still very bitter. He is an alcoholic and he has some dementia things. And I don't judge him for any of those, but I got that it wouldn't have been easy. Mm -hmm. And when two brothers, two surprises, like I already have another three with my mother and another two popped up from him. Oh my gosh. I did not need more brothers. (laughs) (laughs) And another two really lovely young men popped up and came into my life before I kind of bridged the gap with my father. They told me it hadn't been easy, you know, that there were things where he was clearly suffering from PTSD that had impacted their childhood. And we have it that there's a huge missing growing up. Growing up, I didn't know that. That's not the narrative my developmental brain went with. My narrative was if he loved me, he'd come and get. Right. But that's not what was the case. Right. And I got complete about that when I did my journey, when I did my deep dive into me and went, oh, I wrote a story there. Mm-hmm. I colored in the gaps from what I knew. And what I knew was that other people's dads loved them. Therefore, mm-hmm. mine, who's not around, clearly doesn't. And even with my stepfather, bless him, you know, I say this, he was very mercurial. He was very volatile. He was physically abusive and deeply inappropriate on a sexual level. And it took a lot of counseling therapy when I was in my 20s to kind of stop biting my nails and being a bit of a wreck about all of that. But here I am today, very clear, having done my own deep dive, that 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 was a hurt soul. Mm-hmm. He didn't pop out the womb, a wife beater. Right. He was hurt. Now I'm not excusing it. Right. We can choose to repeat patterns or we can choose to handle them. But what I am so grateful for is my capacity to see past and then not live with bitterness mm-hmm. and not live with anger. And it wasn't always like that. It's been a journey to get here. Right. But when I look back and I think of the odd kind of thing he used to say, 
he would be snarling at me sometimes saying, when I was a boy, I'd get my knuckles wrapped for that, you know? And that was an insight right there that I didn't process till later, but I'm like, well, you had a tough time, right? You were shown a lot of hard lines, a lot of unfair boundaries, no time. And, you know, we've evolved as a species to be a lot more aware of what works and what doesn't work for children in their childhood Mm -hmm. and to be a lot softer. It was not a soft childhood that he had. Right. So he wasn't a soft man. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I know about humans is that every single human being needs to feel unique and special to someone. Significance to somebody, to something is a deep human need. And the fastest way to gain significance when we feel insignificance is to be a bully. Right. Now, if you just spin on that for a minute and go, right, so it starts with a deep feeling of insignificance. Now you're looking at the root of bullying behavior. But we know, let me quickly ask you this question because, you know, having girls going to school, you know, they're, they come with this mindset that we're talking about (laughs) and not many do that they go to school with or have gone to school with. So it's, you know, we're looking at it from a different perspective and trying to understand still as a child, you know, why are these girls being mean to me? And, you know, the bull there's, it's a lot, it happens a lot. And, and I've witnessed it and I've been the mama bear and I've been go tell the principal and all these things. But, you know, when you come to this place where you realize, and then I teach my girls that, that, you know, they're just so hurt inside, but you know, they're not, when you say significance, cause I, you know, I've done all the Tony Robbins, it kind of flashed that kind of came into my mind with, cause we talk about that in his courses. But when you look at a child that doesn't have the significance that doesn't have that met, give me your take on it. Because, you know, I teach this all the time when I hear these mean girl stories and I just watch that a lot. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I would say the majority of this experience that I've had as a mom with these girls it's a lot of mean girls. And there's, what's this era, this generation of kids that are they, you know, what? Tell me, Polly. Well, you know, so I have the experience kind of more with boys having had a son and then the boys have been mean. So there's mean boys, there's mean girls. But what I'm really clear about is that they're dealing with what they understand about the world and they, they're kind of the being better than. They're going, oh, I don't like your shoes, you know, whatever the comment is, and I got a lot of that at school, is designed to make them feel better. So there's a feeling of inadequacy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I taught Harry to do very early on when kids were mean was to look them in the eye and say, I'm really sorry you needed to say that. Mm, I and, that. and I said, don't break eye contact. Mm-hmm. Because you're speaking right to their heart. The level you speak to somebody on is the level they hear you on. And he said, he, I remember him ringing me and going, oh my God, it really worked, mummy. You know, he's like, I said it to Freddie and Freddie kind of went, uh, I'm really sorry and looked away. And that like, you don't break eye contact because it shows a power in you. Right. And, and let me give an example of a teacher who was really mean to him once. I'm going to say the name, whether the teacher ever hears this or not is highly unlikely. <laughs> the teacher shouted at him. And basically Harry phoned me sobbing from school, which used to really like, because I'm like, I'm not there to mop you up and hold you at the end of the day. You know, that was the bit that used to really get in there. And he said to me, you know, he, he told me I was a stupid boy. And I'm like, okay, okay, right. 
take a breath. Mummy's right here and I'm listening. So I made it really clear, like they need to be heard. So like, you've got to really hear. And I said to him, talk me through what happened. He said, well, I couldn't see my book. And, and he was shouting at me. And then he said, it's right there, you stupid boy. And I just went, wow, grumpy knickers, right? You know, I lightened the load a little bit. And then I said to him, okay, so is there anything else you can tell me about it? Or have we got really full on the story? So that he'd feel like he'd said everything. He said, no, I'm a, I told you everything now. And I said, okay. So that was not okay. All right. That was not okay. And I've got some questions. Can you be ready for some questions now? And do you get that it's not okay? You know, and that, that reassures them. Oh, right. great. The fact that I feel really uncomfortable now, you've just confirmed that's not okay. Good. It's okay. I feel upset because it wasn't okay. So I said, can you answer this first question for me? Harry, are you stupid? I just want to check in because I got, you couldn't see the book, but are you stupid? I don't think you are, but what do you think? Because what I got was that if like this guy had forced an opinion onto Harry, Mm -hmm. if I forced my opinion over the top, we've just got layers of opinions. The only thing that's going to change is Harry's view. So I said, Harry, how do you feel? He said, no, I'm not stupid, mummy. I'm not stupid. You know, in that really indignant way kids can be. And I'm like, I didn't think you were. I was just checking. No, I'm not. And I was very safe asking that question as well, because I knew how bright he was. You know, we were like, whoa. (laughs) And he can quote pi to us. And I'm like, how do you know all those numbers? You know, (laughs) He answered the question himself, which meant I didn't need to restore that belief. He just restored it himself because it's always a restoring to self that we need to do. So he restored herself in that respect. And then I said, so where do you think Mr. Hodgson learned to speak to people like that? And he said, "Mm, well, probably when he was at school, right? And I went, yeah, tough huh if he was spoken to like that because that's definitely learned behavior he mm-hmm. said yeah he must have had a really bad time so now harry's shifting out of pity for himself and moving into empathy for someone else yes because he got restored he realized something inaccurate had been said he's been heard and now he's showing empathy yeah, which means now he's seeing where the root of the behavior comes from right and i said hey listen you know what I'm really sad that he has learned that kind of behavior and I'm sad he's still doing it to little boys. And I'm so glad in a way that he got at you because you're able to work this out mm-hmm. and didn't get someone that would never work this out. But forever on a day, you and me, we're going to call him Mr. Hodgepodge Bumface. <laughs> <laughs> Cute. I just kind of giggled about it. And I'm like, it's oh. like a little secret about the time he was a silly Billy. But at the end of the day, he probably just learned this behavior. Well, he was basically saying it himself. Yeah, I feel really sorry for him. Now, Mm -hmm. by the time we got to that point in the conversation, Harry's voice was steady, he was relaxed, and he got that the problem wasn't his. Mm -hmm. And that's the key for children is when they believe the problem is theirs and they feel wrong. And because wrong goes back to that cause effect and that morality issue and that shame, like the shame had gone. And so where we become disconnected in life and where we become obsessed with 
that's not my fault. That's your fault. I did my work, uh, you know, and all those sorts of things that we say. And like, I'm not being paid appropriately or don't you touch my car. How dare you cut me up? All that stuff comes from a place of smallness. Mm-hmm. All that stuff comes from a place of insignificance. But when we restore our relationship with ourselves, then we actually don't need the outside world to tell us how great we are. And a true relationship with yourself isn't ego-based either. It's mm-hmm. just a true relationship. And when I restored my relationship with me, it was like, oh, you know, it was like, you're all right, girl. I've oh. got you. Yes. You know, it's tough for kids because they're young and their brains are developing and they want to go places. But by talking it out like that, I don't know if you know about my children's character that I developed. No. But I, I did think that you may not have known this, actually, because I, they're not ne- necessarily connected to my coaching. But basically, when Harry was four, I made up a character for him. And this character is called the Grumpet. And literally, it's spelled G-R-U-M-P, like you're grumpy, but with I-T on the end. And okay. it like your ego. So it's the grumpet. Oh, now the grumpet, he was struggling with something. He, we went to an obstacle course and also there was the, the big slide and he was deeply, deeply threatened by this because it just looks so big to such a little person. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, oh, but it's not you that's scared. Do you know that? I literally made it up. And for a long time, it's a funny story about why I didn't take it anywhere. Cause I'm like, people are going to think I'm bonkers. <laughs> you know, Cause yeah. you make stuff up and it's like your secret fun at home. right? Yes. Oh, yeah. You're talking to me. We we do that. Like our house. So like we used to pretend that we had a shark that came for tea and the shark used to ask us why we had two tails. And I would explain to the shark, there are legs and you've got a tail. And Harry used to sit there wrapped listening to me, but he was learning about animals and the world and difference and diversity through it. And I used to use it as an excuse. So I often used to just talk to Mr. Shark like he was sat there and Harry would sit looking at the space like it was real. You know, it was so cute. So we did the same with the grumpet and I'm like, but the grumpet, he lives inside of you. And I said, do you feel funny inside at the moment? Because you're scared. He went, yeah. I'm like, that's the grumpet. So look, the grumpet's got the best ears, eyes and nose in the whole world. And all he does is look, listen and sniff out how your day is going. And if he hears, sees or smells anything new or scary or that he's unsure of, he goes all spiky and he runs around inside of you to give you those funny feelings. It's a warning. Oh my gosh. You have to do. You have to use your ears, eyes, and nose to check out the grumpet for the grumpet. And then you tell him whether it's really scary or just seems scary. Now, for years, my friends were like, oh my God, we're using the grumpet at home. It's amazing. You know, Ben was telling me the other day that his grumpet was super spiky and I was able to diddle and all this stuff was coming out of it. And eventually I was doing, when in 2016, I did my deep dive, I was doing a leadership program and, and it was all about self-expression and leadership. And my trainers, she challenged me. She said, take that character into schools and see if it's got gravitas. And I was like, oh, this is going to be so embarrassing because I was growing myself. And I went into schools with it. And I remember explaining it to a bunch of primary school teachers. And there was silence. (laughs) And in your head, you're like, oh, they hate it. They're being polite. They don't know what to say. And then the silence broke when one said, this is really clever. Because every character that we have to date exists in its own right. And it might be like, bashful Ben or stroppy Susan and you see the characters and you relate to them but your grumpet 
is your grandparent. Yeah. And oh, basically, okay. if there's a class of 30 children and a teacher, then there are 31 grumpets in the room as well. Right. So we were like, oh, great. Okay. So I put together a workshop and I've got a, an artist at a college to draw my grumpet as I assumed it would be. And we went around schools and basically tried to see if it had any weight. Mm-hmm. And we found that not only did it become a tool that schools said, this is really great, we want to do something with this, but that actually that we had then a school say, can I be a grumpet school? And so that's the grumpet. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> so he's like gormless and cute. And basically there's the book and there's my son, Harry. Oh my gosh, so- Harry and the big scary, what? Oh, the big scary slide. Oh, I love yeah. it. So it was literally that first time and basically what we did was we developed a coloring in page this was before the book was even published Uh but what we found was that school said this is really worth using as a tool and the massive side effect that we did not see coming that made me cry time and time again and I've had teachers cry with me about this is that the special needs children who struggle to self-express love the grandpa Uh. So they all engage. And I literally had a teacher come up to me in tears one day and she said, that little boy with the curly hair, he doesn't talk. And we could not shut him up. He was Oh my gosh. He was telling us about his grumpet. Then we sat them down and they're coloring in their grumpets. They're showing you that there's different because actually there's, um, I'm telling Harry about my grumpet in this. And then he tells me what his grumpet's like. And of course his, as you can see, is multicolored. Uh, yes, cute. So The point is that we discovered that this had real weight and the biggest, biggest thing going back to what I was saying about restoring our relationship with ourselves, is your grumpet. When you self-soothe, when you're soothing your grumpet, you're self-soothing. You're restoring your relationship with yourself. Yes. I love that. When you can talk to yourself well, that's the beginning of mental health in the real sense of those two words. Not mm-hmm. mental repair, not mental, let's make it back up. But that's health mentally. Yes. And this is now, we've, now, we've had some white papers written on it and it's growing and, and I've, got some, I've got some schools in Canada interested in now and it's available on Amazon. You can get this book on Amazon, but it's like, it's in its infancy. We're still just starting out. But yeah, it's become uh, a thing. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad you shared that because I didn't know about that. Yeah, oh, well, there's a, there's a website as well. It's called thegrumpet.com. Just oh, okay. that's it. Spelt grump, it, grumpet, thegrumpet.com. And on there is like lots of different kind of grumpets. And it just, there's a child, clinical child psychologist that left a review, you know, saying this is a real tool. The biggest thing that we have to get back to as adults and for our children is to get back to restoring our relationship to ourselves. Mm-hmm. If yeah. we have a relationship with us, then we can become like, I know I have value and my value doesn't exist like, oh, she's good at this or she's good at that. I might be a good expression of some things. I just let out knowledge I've learned. I didn't make this stuff up. I wasn't born with this. And I definitely know that there's an innate intelligence and a universal intelligence that we tap into. But the biggest thing that we all have is this. And I point to my thumbprint here because our thumbprint is our uniqueness. Mm -hmm. There is only one of me and one of you and one of everybody else in all of time. And if we don't get how magical and different and unique we are, because and equal, we're all equal. Uh-huh. If we don't get that, that's when we feel unequal. And then we get shittier about people cutting us up on the roads. Right. 
Yes. You know, I've been doing this deep, deep spiritual, I mean, work. I've always been a seeker and a learner in the bookstores, you know, until we could like do podcasts. And then I went, you know, all into that and the seminars. And, you know, once you get to a place where you start to realize that story that you tell has no meaning, there's no worth to that. And to really start shifting your mind to taking those those thoughts and those beliefs outside and coming to this place where you're at this neutrality. I call it like this, you know, this equal, this peaceful, you know, it's like almost like a free feeling, you know, it's like this feeling of no one can do anything to make my, my straight line move. Right. You know, and when you realize and you take ownership of that and you realize that the only person that you're in charge of is me, is you. And you can't create in anyone else's reality, but your own. And when you create that in your life, oh my gosh. And I explain this to all the students that I teach. Like when you create this belief in yourself that you can be, do, or have anything and that you have the power and you're so powerful beyond, and we are, are all one. And everyone, when you look at people in the eye and you see their little soul, that is you too. And you look and you teach these kids that we're all one. We all are connected and we all are just this unique expression of that one oneness. That's the lie that we live with, that we're disconnected and that we're alone. The biggest lie and the biggest cause of depression is the idea of aloneness. Mm -hmm. And that's the biggest mistruth that we're taught. Because like how many people think of someone and then they ring? The right. Signal, oh, I know. I the love signal that. got gotten, got right? The signal was heard. Yes. And you need something and you turn the corner and there's what you need. I mean, and the more discombobulated we become, the harder it gets to draw in what we want because the messages that we're sending, you know, I call it the befriend dang moment. So my husband loves befriend dang. How do I know? Because he tells me all the time. He you likes know, like, what? What is it? Befriend dang. It's like an Indonesian dish. Oh, okay. It's like beef cooked in coconut for a very, very long time till it just falls apart and he loves it. How do okay. I know? So when we're first dating, he took me out for beef rendang. He's like, you've got to come try beef rendang at this amazing restaurant. When I say to him before his birthday, what would you love me to cook you? Beef rendang, baby. You know, and I know <laughs> that he loves it on the night with rice and he loves it the next day on toast. <laughs> and it's like... He loves it if I keep a portion in the freezer and it's like every major party that we've ever done, can we have beef rendang? So this has been so constant through my 16 years of marriage to him. I'm left in no doubt. Now, if I said to him in March, I'd love a pair of cashmere socks for next Christmas, and I never mentioned it again, would I be surprised if they didn't turn up? Right. I shouldn't be, right? Right. So here's the thing. When we're sending out messages in our thoughts, if your messages are inconsistent, do I want this? I think so. Maybe not. But maybe now's not the right time. Maybe I shouldn't. Maybe that's greedy of me. Maybe I should look at something else. Let me have a look over here. I'm going to do this. Yeah, I'm going to do this. Oh, I don't know if the timing's quite right. You know, and all that crazy thought. Mm-hmm. The universe goes, well, I don't really know what you want. So I'm going to right. hold off until you get clear on it. Yes. But when your back's to the wall and you need something, my goodness, it comes. Yes. Because uh. we are that powerful. Then we pull it in. Because we have to. Mm -hmm. So 
it's the messages you're sending. Are they consistent? Are you asking for the same thing? I mean, I run a, a manifestation class for people. And one of the first things I do is we find your key thing that would make a massive difference. And we talk about it. And we talk about it. And three times a day, you visit it. It's an exercise that takes less than 50 minutes across all three times you visit it in the day. But it's your overarching thought. Guess what? Stuff happens. You decide you want a blue car and a red bath. Before you know it, you're seeing blue cars, ev- cars everywhere and you're suddenly discovering all these people who make red baths. Yeah. Because you went, you call it in. Yes. You can have anything you want. I know. You just got to get clear about it. And you know, I've had that. So I have a car, a white Range Rover. We we put it out and the, the girls and I would do the reticular activating game where we'd find, you know, how many, the first day there was like five. After that, the next week there was every single car on the freeway was a white Range Rover with white interior. And then we and went. And- I really love what you just said, by the way, because I want to just catch that. That's powerful. You talked about the reticular activating game. You know, what we don't appreciate is that you have a thought that says, well, maybe daddy doesn't love me like I did. I mean, my thought was well daddy obviously doesn't love me which is why he's not around and then the next time I'm reminded I don't have a dad because someone says where's your dad I'm like I don't have a daddy that's what Mm -hmm. I used to say as a child and I wouldn't take my stepfather as my own I didn't like him he didn't come along till I was five anyway and I was like he's not my daddy so I then built this narrative and then because I built the narrative what happened was that thought was repeated which meant it became a thought pattern Mm-hmm. A thought pattern, when repeated enough then, and it becomes validated, becomes a belief. When a belief gets confirmed again and again through various experiences, it becomes a core belief. And a core belief controls your biases. But more than that, your reticular activating system then starts screening out the other information that's available because it's not what you need. Right. And it screens in only what you want. So we take that back to our beliefs about ourselves. Like we want to be careful what thoughts you repeat mm-hmm. because they're creating a pattern that's leading all the way to your reticular activating system, controlling what you see. Yes. Isn't that powerful? And when I right. teach that in my classes and they're like, whoa, it's called Mother Podcasts and Cover Your Magic. So I call it your magic moments and how... You know, kids aren't looking up anymore because their heads are down in their phones. You know, it's like so I get (laughs) that's like a really touchy subject with me. But, you know, when I teach, you know, look up, what are you going to find today? You know, they pick one thing and that is the reticular activating game. But, you know, you pick one thing and, uh, you know, you never thought you saw butterflies. Well, all of a sudden there's a million butterflies everywhere you go, even if it's not an actual butterfly, it could be on a poster on the sheets or, you know, but to teach them that that's how powerful you are. We all have that ability to see anything we want to see, to have the, the things we want to have, but you just don't realize those little thoughts in your head that are stopping you. It's those thoughts and how powerful and just to do that. You know, I always, do you study Abraham Hicks? Yes. Love it. <laughs> Do I ever? <laughs> it's so funny. When I ever ask anybody, it's like, oh my gosh, yeah, that's yeah. kind of where it all began. And it did kind of begin with that with me like 30 years ago. And, you know, when I share her with, with my client, you know, I'll send some 15 minute yeah, messages, them. you know, that really talk to me about who I'm working with at the time. And they're like, huh, you know, like, you know, your thoughts and then your vibration And, you know, what all the things that she teaches in that basic way 
And you know, every time she's going to get a question, it's basically, she's like, well, I'm going to say the same answer pretty much this whole time. Yeah. But it's so true. It is the thoughts you think, the energy, it's all, we're all energy and vibration and what we attract, you know, like attracts like, you know, I was reading your blogs. I was really, those were really cool. Like where I was, I would love to print those and read them because they affected me. But, you know, I was reading the, um, the spectrum with the Hawkins scale of consciousness. Ah, yes. Will you explain that? Cause that, we're wrapping up, but I just, I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, it's a good one. People can go and Google it. Um, certainly not my thing, but there's something called the Hawkins scale of consciousness, which basically is where what we've learned, you know, we've learned to measure light energy and we've learned to measure vibrational energy. And what they did was a whole exercise in measuring different vibrational states. And what you see when you Google Hawkins scale of consciousness is that right down at the bottom is shame, Mm -hmm. shame and hate and fear. Those are the lowest vibrations. And if you think about when you're cheesed off, it's a low vibration and you feel heavy and you feel low and stuff like that. And then all the way up through the various emotions, you get all the way up to love and gratitude and enlightenment. They sit right at the top. Mm -hmm. And those are the light, happy feelings. Like think about when you fell in love and you just, God, you're on top of the world. You know, you felt so powerful and light and everything moved and flowed and, you know, was just superb and, and how you wanted it to be. And yet down there, it's all clunky and unpleasant. And Hawkins scale of consciousness, you know, when you become mindful and conscious and present to that, it's like you can have a moment where you stop and you can think, okay, I am really irritated by what just happened, but what am I going to choose? Mm-hmm. Because It's a simple question, like, does this help me move towards what I want or away from what I want? And if what you want feels really good, like nobody wants something that doesn't feel good. So whether it's a million pounds or a beautiful new house or a solution to a problem, we have it that that will feel good. Therefore, if that feels good and you're not feeling good, you're not on the same vibrational wavelength as what you want. So the crappy thoughts that we have and the unpleasant beliefs, is this working for me? Or against me. Yes. And when it's working against you, then just drop it. It's like change it. Doesn't matter what you do. And there's that brilliant thing, isn't there, where the mind doesn't care between something imagined or not. So the first thing I do is like I Google cats and cucumbers and watch cats leaping every time someone sticks a cucumber. I mean, I've got cats. They would be so offended if I stuck a cucumber behind them, but watch them leap. It's so funny. You know, (laughs) I go and watch something that's funny. Go and watch cockatiels and how they behave with their owners and watch anything that makes you laugh or pretend because the brain recognizes the smile and doesn't care if it's real or not. It goes, oh yeah, we know about that physiology and it sends out the good feelings. Yes. And just like, consciously work on that doesn't make me feel good that's moving me away from what I want when I say I want that why am I walking backwards if I continue with this thought right make it a choice yeah own it oh own it is right in my morning routine I'm in my first week we just started this week for my next class of these amazing humans and we do a morning routine I teach this week and they have to smile before they put their feet on the floor and I explain I don't care if you're happy or not. And I always tell them to put a pen in their mouth, you know, so it, all it's doing is moving your mouth up. So this chemicals is telling your brain you're happy. Right. And then yes. I make them say, I'm going to have a great day. Cause I say, then everything in your brain is going to look for everything great. Yes. So when they get to this place of these kids 
when their parents are like, I don't know what's going on, but the energy in our house now is so different in the morning. You know, they go from chaos to screaming, to hurry up, to their gratitude practice, their I am statements, their intentions of the day, their what they're going to do to take action on a goal. You know, all the things that they set their mind to look for the good and be in the place of a vibration where anything you want is up here. <laughs> You know, it is, you know how how uh, Abraham always says we the only thing we why we want things is to feel good. You know, you know that's what what we're reaching for is to feel good. So get there and then watch the magic come. Right. You know, and I love right. that example. You're literally then in the same state as what you want, and it's only at that point you'll match it. Right. Isn't that? I mean, you think that's, is that brain science? <laughs> you well, know? It, so actually I had, my military husband will sometimes look at me and say, woman, you need, woman, you need to put it into English for me. What are you saying? You know, because he's got a structured military regimented brain and I have to go away and I have to kind of find, like, put it into science and not woo woo. Mm-hmm. And then he can understand it. But actually, he listens to Abraham Hicks and loves it. Oh, good. And he, and we both love how funny she is because she's funny. Yes, Abraham's so funny. funny. But, but the point is, is that by looking for the science, he, he has inadvertently made me a better coach and a better explainer because it made me go and find the explanation that actually brought the science to it. And that's what Stephen, um, the, the, the Hawkins scale of consciousness is. It's a representation that we can buy into because there's no two ways about it. How do you tune a piano? you tune a piano up to match the piano tuning fork. And we know it's a lower vibration on the big, heavy keys and a much lighter one, you know, later. So right. we know that this is this is something in existence that we can measure. And of course, there's been all those other wonderful experiments, haven't there, where they have had a room with discombobulated music, like lots of very heavy metal music, and they've formed ice crystals in that room and they've all formed really badly. And then they've played beautiful music and had people laughing and they've had these beautiful, beautiful snowflakes and crystals formulized. You know, it's an energetic wave at all times. Right. You know, and one thing I always say about manifesting, which is something that I was probably allergic to that word for a very long time, is that when you're truly manifesting something, you've just got to remember that if it's whatever you're manifesting, even if it's money, if anything is a thing, whatever it is, then the laws of physics apply to it. Mm -hmm. Because what holds my pen on my desk and stops it falling through my desk is equal pressure. And if I got too much pressure from the desk, the pen would rise up. But the pen stays exactly where it is because there's equal pressure. So if money and stuff is flowing in and out at the same rate, it's because you've got equal pressure of what's going out to what's coming in. So you want more coming in, you've got to increase the positive feelings to bring in what you want, increase the law of attraction feelings and decrease your repellent feelings. And I was talking to a client literally earlier today and I said, how long is your list that would be your spending list? Like if I gave you unlimited how much do you think we get to? And she just started to laugh. Mm-hmm. And I said, Look, let me lead you. I've probably got a 40 million pound list, right? That includes my dream lifestyle, my car, my house, my holidays, everything all wrapped up, all the future payments, my investments, so I can relax and just do what I want to do. But that's a 40 million pound repellent list in many senses. So I've got to manifest higher than that to get mm-hmm. that to come in comfortably. Right. That's a high vibe. That is so a high vibe. How much time am I going to waste being grumpy? Right. Exactly. How much time am I going to waste being unhappy right. or thinking, I really don't like her. I can't believe she only put half a teaspoon in my cup of tea. Or I can't believe they drove in front of me. How long are you going to waste on that I energy? Know. 
right? Ah, so fun. Oh, I love talking to you. Um, (laughs) I see we keep getting, it's already been an hour and I could just keep going, but my, okay. So polybateman.com. It's the, the, the Polly Bateman. Bateman. Yeah, the, the Polly. I had to put the, there's a lovely lady who's already got um, another Bateman. site. And so she's got Polly Bateman. She put me to the post on that. So I became the Polly Bateman. And because I was British, I was super awkward about that to start with. Oh, but um, but then it kind of added because we've got thegrumpet.com and thepollybateman.com and it became a thing. So yeah, all social media is just at the Polly Bateman. And then my website is thepollybateman.com. And you have your courses on there. I don't actually, but I I talk about them online. Actually, I talk about them more on Instagram and I have like an online program where people, if they can't quite afford to work with me one-to-one, they can do it on videos and workbooks. And then they come to a group call with me or they can work with me one-to-one. So yeah, it's a real mixed bag of what you can do. And I'm bringing out this manifestation course soon. I think I'm going to call it magnetic energy or something like that, you know, magnetizing your life to have what you truly want. So the, to break it down into the science so people really understand what I'm talking about. Right. So yes, yeah, I love that stuff. And everyone that's listening does too. We all have those. We love to manifest. We love to create. And we love to know that we have the power to do everything and be whatever we want to be, have all the stuff that is there for us at that high vibration. Yeah. <laughs> Just right. be live in that place, right? That's our birthright. Yes. And let's all live that way. And when I, you think of these kids, your son and what you've done for him and taught him to live that way and see how his life will, he's 13. 14 now. Yeah. Okay. 14. And what you've done for him, you know, just as an example, as a mom and what you're leaving him to know and what he's going to be out in this world. Yeah, he'll be a he'll be a good man. I mean, he still finds me deeply embarrassing as a parent anyway. Oh, <laughs> that's well, normal, right? Yeah, but it yeah. is normal. <laughs> it is. But he also is a hugger. You know, he's a 14-year-old boy who thinks nothing of throwing his arms around me and kissing me in front of his mates, you know, and he's not awkward about any of that stuff. And and he thinks that both of us are weird, like, oh, you you guys are so weird, you know. <laughs> Because we obviously have different language and he's so used to, like he was born the same month as the iPhone. How weird is that? That's so normal to him. And I grew up without it. So I'm only just, I still hate the fact my life runs around my iPhone, you know, and all that stuff. But yeah, it's, it's, I want him to be a human that sees past what's happening and sees that there are root causes. And I'm, I'm, I, I believe that's what he will be for sure, because he already displays a deep level of emotional intelligence. And EQ is actually going to be the new measure moving forward in this world where artificial intelligence is the one thing that will be displayed that we can keep hold of. Emotional intelligence is the one thing that we can... So a job with emotional intelligence is a hard job for a computer or robot to replace. So our EQ is really important to us as a species. Yes, I love that. It's been so fun, Polly. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so sorry about my phone ringing so loudly right at the beginning. (laughs) Oh, you're fine. But thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Uncover Your Magic podcast today. If you are inspired by what you heard today, please share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. If you would like to connect with me with any questions, comments, or feedback, please contact me at the Uncover Your Magic website. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, always look for the magic.